really great that we can socialize like this in person <laughs> on Zoom. Um, okay, so I'm really intrigued by tonight. So I'm continuing my series on The Christian Delusion, by, edited by John Luftus. So yeah, my title is The Christian Delusion Is God Good, addressing with this third part of the book, where the first part was Why Faith Fails. The second one was uh, The Bible Is Not Really God's Word. Tonight is God good, and then next week the resurrection of Jesus, and then, or not, uh, or the next part I should say is the resurrection of Jesus, and then the following part is how Christianity is not a social good, um, <clears throat> that it didn't really give basis for modern science, it doesn't make us moral, so on. Okay, so <clears throat> they say that God's not good because of creation and because of revelation. So God's not good uh, because of natural evil in the created world and because the Old Testament laws speak so negatively about women, slavery, and so on. I'm not going to speak about both of those tonight. Last week, I tried to cover all three chapters of this book, and I felt that it was too cumbersome, too long, and not dealing deep enough with the issues that they bring up. It wasn't that I meant to try to take it lightly, but uh, perhaps I did. But they give good, incisive critiques of Christianity. Uh, I have still found them wanting uh, because based out of their naturalistic presuppositions. But I still feel like I need to deal with it more sufficiently. Uh, Richard Dawkins had the God delusion, which basically just said, you know, the genes just don't show God. Uh, we have a selfish gene. Uh, well, this one is done, edited by a former preacher. And a lot of essays are done by people who were either nominal or um, in some way they call themselves Christian, all but one, and have left Christian faith and have written articles on why they don't believe anymore. Um, and so I want to deal that in time. So the first section was three chapters and I felt like I could deal with it sufficiently in one talk. I think I did too much last week. Well, this week, I'm just going to, I'm going to make it two weeks on this question. Is God good? Mm -hmm. Today I'm going to deal with is God good uh, when there's so much natural evil, particularly animal suffering. Mm -hmm. He calls it the Darwinian problem of evil. Next week, I'm going to be dealing with the issue of revelation how can God be good when his Old Testament law seems to reflect a moral standard that's far below ours and even contradicted by the Bible? <clears throat> now, um, I want you to imagine uh, Fluffbutt, name of a chicken, plodding around with this nice fluffy butt. This is the name of the children have given the chickens. And an eagle swoops down and eviscerates the chicken by taking out its internal organs through the backside. Uh, well, we saw one time an eagle clamp down on a chicken, maybe called brownie, and the eagle pushed down this chicken with his talons. <clears throat> we scared off the eagle, but its back was completely missing. 
And Sarah Beth said, hey, this chicken's back is missing. <clears throat> because she was eight years old, I thought, oh, she's speaking metaphorically or exaggeratedly. But no, the chicken's back was literally missing and walking around just with the skeleton. And, but still alive. Mm. And I had to deal with the death of that chicken just before I lectured that night. Uh, and so I snuck around the chicken coop took it and I was told not to kill the chicken in front of other chickens. So I took it to the side and wrung its neck. Um, and I left the chicken there because I didn't know, I, I was like, well, I'm running late for my own lecture and I have to leave it on the patio. Don't want to put it in a bag, can't bury it. Can't leave it inside the house. So I left it there, came back and it was gone. Presumably a raccoon got it. So this just gives you a sense of what's happening, not only at Labrie, but within nature. <clears throat> now, I've told some people that I'm talking about the nature of, or, um, the nature of natural evil or of animal suffering. How can God be good if animals suffer? And a lot of people's responses are, eh, it's just animals. <laughs> it's just animals. We don't need to create more problems. I think that, you know, the Holocaust is a far bigger problem than a chicken named Flufflet dying by an eagle. Now, I would like to suggest whatever your views of animals are, and it probably will come up tonight, is that I think that this problem actually presents something that is just as significant as human suffering. I'm not saying that humans and animals are exactly the same, but I'm saying that what happens is that human animal suffering points to an evil that goes beyond humans uh, receiving the punishment of their actions. What I'm saying is that animals suffer even though they have done nothing wrong or were they created this way. So a lot of Christians would say that animals suffer because humans have sinned and brought a curse on them. And so many people ask, well, why do animals suffer because of what we've done? Uh, or if God created the world where animals eat each other, how can we say God is good? Um, so let me read a passage from Richard Dawkins. It's a very famous passage. It's from River Out of Eden, a Darwinian view of life. And Loftus quotes this, and it's very oftenly quoted. <clears throat> Nature is neither kind nor unkind. She's neither against suffering nor for it. The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear. Others are being slowly devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst, and disease. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So 
Dawkins has an ability to have a rhetorical flourish. And I think he really brings home not just the pain and suffering of animals, but even our sense of that pain and suffering. And how can we say God is good if such a universe exists? Well, Loftus wants to know, well, Christian, what do you have to say? How can you say God is good when such a reality is evident? Now, before he gets into eight uh, Christian options, he wants to say, but here's my philosophical standard. Um, he says, we need to have a standard of proof. Don't just come up with your silly stories. We need a standard of proof. And he says the highest standard of proof for a Christian to say that, a, that God is good is a theodicy. A theodicy properly defined is an explanation why God permits evil. Why does God permit evil? And Loftus says, if it does its job, then it satisfies the reasons and it leaves little to explain. So this is why Alvin Plantiga says, well, we can't, Christians can't offer a theodicy. That's too high of a standard. Rather, we need to offer a defense. And a defense is why God might permit evil. Not why God does permit evil, why God might permit evil. We have to do some guesswork. Loftus says that this standard is far too low. Christians always come up with possibilities, not probabilities. And therefore, Christianity is improbable. He doesn't want to know why it could be. I mean, it could be that we are living on the back of a giant ant. It could be that we're living in a dream. That's possible, but not probable. So he wants probability, not possibility. Well, there's a third option that was given by a guy named Michael Murray. And it was de causa day, which means in defense of God, on behalf of God. And it's a legal defense for God. And so what Michael Murray says is, well, it's kind of like having a defendant in the court and you're having to defend this person as the lawyer. So as Christians, we are lawyers for God on his behalf. But Murray says we can only make a defense insofar as it is of what we know. He feels that the Odyssey is too high. We can't explain everything because we only have so much information. And we can't have too low as like a defense. We need to deal with the evidence. So he says, okay, as a lawyer, as Christians, as like lawyers trying to defend God's goodness, deal with the evidence and the possibilities. Well, um, Loftus says that this is still too low of a bar as far as he's concerned, because of what can be known is not just evidence, but of theological proofs like the resurrection, which he finds insufficient. And then some Christians raise their empty hands and say, I don't know. They claim ignorance, which is what Loftus thinks most Christians do. They have no clue. And so Loftus says that, there are, that, um, that these are not really proper theodicies, that these do not raise to the standard of proof. And at best, all they can do is lead to the God of philosophers. 
you can prove that God is good and powerful and these kind of things, but it doesn't lead to the God of the Bible. You can kind of convince him of a theoretical God, but not the God of the Bible, not in any real sense. Nevertheless, he says, let's, let's see if I can be convinced. And he's going to lay out eight options that Christians have given, um, done by Christian apologists. This is one thing I really like about Loftus. Uh, I disagree with him uh, and at many points, but I do respect that he uses Christian apologists of repute. He doesn't just use any wacko or any <laughs> crazy opinion or Christian on the street. He uses the best and a lot of people will say, oh, I read uh, um, William Lane Craig or not. Well, let's talk about that later. <laughs> and then he wants to refute them on the standard of his proof. Okay, so let's look at the Christian solutions. I'm going to look at eight Christian solutions and then respond to Loftus. Okay, so but let me explain the problem. Paleontological, paleontological, okay, this is a rough start. Paleontological and geological records show that animals suffered three and a half billion years ago. Humans did not come onto the scene until 200,000 years ago. How then we can we say that God is good for 3.4 seven, five billion years, animals ate each other. Dinosaurs had bone cancer, shown by the geological and paleontological records. Now, let me give you a little caveat. I'm not dealing with science, and I'm not dealing with this as a scientist. I'm dealing with this as a Christian apologist, theologian, and just a Christian believer. And I'm wanting to deal with what Loftus has to argue. I'm not dealing with the science per se. Uh, <clears throat> okay. Well, how can we say God is good with this problem? That animal suffering has been so, not only do we see it um, now, but we see it in the past. So even if it, it could be 10,000 years, they, they died. It, it doesn't matter how long before that they died. In fact, you can say that they suffer now. How is that any good? Like it doesn't seem like there was ever a point where there wasn't. Like it doesn't seem that there was any point, ever a point, that animals did not suffer or prey on each other. That's the problem suggested. Okay. So, eight solutions. Now, some of them are better than others. Um. But let's just start with the traditional argument. Uh, this is that when humans sin, creation was cursed. Okay. Uh, this is John Calvin held this view. Francis Schaeffer held this view that at this point, God in his power cursed creation. Loftus rejects this straight up. <laughs> he throws it up and just knocks it out. He's like, get me, get rid of that. Um, arguing that this denies scientific records uh, that show that animals suffered long before humans arrived on the scene. Because there's records, there's scientifically verified records. 
And he says this often reveals the ignorance that so many Christians have about scientific literature. Furthermore, uh, even if we point to the Bible, Loftus says, God speaks about animals being a part of the food chain in Psalm 104. The, the animals that come out at night and these types of things. Or you can point to Job 39, where the eagles are feeding their young with the blood of other animals. <laughs> now, there's going to be at times when, so this, so I just basically offered the view that the creation was cursed, and that's why we see it. Loftus says, no, we have records, and even the Bible seems to suggest that God recognizes predators as a part of his good creation. So let's not even accept this. Now, I'm going to give sometimes qualifications or in additions to what he's saying, okay? Now, you could argue that the descriptions in Psalm 104 or Job 39 are simply post-fall realities. That, yes, they are predators, but God still holds them in his good grace, his sovereign care. So, yes, just as we are sinful, we are still given rain and sun. Furthermore, uh, one could argue against Loftus, well, when God created it by fiat, by his sure will, that we as sinful creatures, and because God changed everything, we can't see beyond, we can't see what creation was like pre-fall. We can't see it. Yet Loftus says, in refutation of that, that this denies any investigation of natural laws. We can't believe any natural laws and we can have no consistency with science. So he wants to reject that. If you want to say that it's just all post-fall reality, then what good is that? You can just make up stuff and put it behind the veil. Um, uh, he says that the natural laws are so consistent and that the records show that these natural laws were in place much longer than the traditional arguments make it to be. Intent, in fact, it demands that God deceived us or deceives us with this post-fall reality. And so you may say the fossils uh, and these types of things, uh, as I know one woman said, the fossils under these mountains, perhaps they are there to deceive uh, people to see if they truly trust God. But what that ends up doing is it casts God's character into question to preserve their own view of creation. So we can't, so this falls short in some regards. Well, the second, well, it's not the second option. It's like the second part of the first option, the fall. Well, some people say, well, no, creation was cursed by the, because of human sin, but retroactively that God knew for, in his foreknowledge, he knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin. And so the effects of the fall on all of creation were there before they even existed. Uh, Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, and Michael Murray, and others hold this view. Um, <clears throat> Jesus' of, Jesus's, uh, forgiveness can extend retroactively. To those in Old Testament, why can't the curse of Adam and Eve work retroactively? Now, 
within this view, within all these views, there's always sub views. Uh, but Peter Van Inwigen, I think I'm pronouncing his name, Inwigen, Inwigen, says that when Adam and Eve were created, they were made a special creation and they were placed in this special garden with pattern, preternatural characteristics or care where they were protected that if a stone were to fall, it would not hurt them. If a snake was venomous that was around could not hurt them. So they were somehow protected. Uh, and when they fell, cat, God basically took away his protections. No longer would they live forever. And they were cast out because when they're cast out of the garden, where did they go? Uh, and so they're cast out of that protection into a world of violence and suffering that had existed for a long time. Loftus is very dissatisfied with this account. And he believes that with such a story, one can make up any story. He's like, you can just make up any story because I want one that fits the evidence. Okay, so the first one is the fall causes... Um, the curse of creation either by fiat or retroactively. Okay, the second one, satanic corruption. Now, this was held by C.S. Lewis and Gregory Boyd and uh, Richard Swinburne. Now, C.S. Lewis said that if humans could be corrupted by satanic influence, so could animals. Gregory Boyd has a similar argument, saying that God is involved in a cosmic war before the creation, and when creation came into existence, it experienced the collateral damage of that cosmic war. I'm eating a Stroopwafel cookie. I had to take a break just for a second. It's just sitting there. I can't stop myself. There's only one <laughs> so Loftus says, okay, well, this simply begs the question. Okay, why did God allow Satan to have so much influence? Stop laughing at me, everyone. Everyone's laughing at me in this room. Satan and the cookie. Don't worry, I have lots of cookie left. This is not. So so Loftus says, okay, well, okay. It wasn't Adam and Eve that caused the curse of creation. It was Satan. But that only begs the question, why did God allow Satan to corrupt creation? Why didn't God stop him before he messed everything up? That's exactly what Sarah Beth asked me when she asked me what I was talking about. And this is one of her primary questions in her life. Why did God allow Satan to have any power? Now, Bethany Solretter, uh, faculty at the, uh, of theology at University of Oxford, and she's the author of God, Evolution, and Animal Suffering. Um, I'll say much, I'll say a little bit more about her later. But she says that, well, satanic corruption is also wrong because this ends up giving too much creative agency to Satan. Mm -hmm that the fleet-footed deer is not the cause of the thing of the cougar. It's because God created the world to evolve in that way. It's his creative agency, not Satan. But I, I may say, 
in a counter to that, that what Satan may mean for ill, God means for good. Okay. So the first option is the fall. The second one is satanic corruption prior to uh, the creation of humanity. Now, the next four are all about the nature and purpose of animals. Yes. What's the difference between like the fall and satanic, like, and satanic corruption? Because don't those two go together? What's the fall? Okay. What's the difference between the fall and satanic corruption? Well, the fall is satanic corruption of humanity. C.S. Lewis is saying maybe there was a animal fall or a disturbance in the force kind of thing. But isn't that kind of what, yeah, I'm, I still have to see how it's just, it happens at two different times. So like the, the, don't you have to like have free will to make like a fall to happen? Well, it, you don't necessarily, I mean, you don't necessarily have to have a free will to fall. Like. And it's not saying a, it's not saying an animal fall. I missed that. A satanic corruption. So Satan brings in violence into the world. So how it do wasn't like God cursing the world? Like in the first one, it's like God cursing the world. Right. Cursing the world or bringing the curse into the world. So basically, it's like you know when Job is tormented by the devil. Yeah. Well, it's almost as if God allows Satan to do so prior to the creation of humanity. He allows Satan to do that with animals and nature. Whereas it's a more, it's a more active thing than his part of Oh, how do you mean it's a more active? Like because there's no free will. Well, like him cursing, if he's like cursing the God, like cursing Right. I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but it seems that, however, that satanic corruption, because then you have to make a story about how that happened. Yeah. But they're not going so far to explain how it happened. Otherwise, they're saying that just Satan, if he could have an influence on Adam and Eve, then why couldn't he have had influence earlier? <clears throat> why is he in the garden? He must have had some power to be there, so why couldn't he have influenced earlier creation? Can you were saying that Satan is only with the humanity, not with the animal? Say again? You said that it was the fall of Satan, the fall of with the humanity, not with the animal? Well, what would have happened in the fall was that Satan would have tempted Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve gave over to Satan, disbelieved God, and trusted Satan's words more, mm-hmm. and as a result would have sinned but when they sinned, they would have brought all of creation into that curse because they were, they were to rule over the earth. And so when they were cursed, it brought all of creation into that curse. And animals don't have that power. And animals don't have that power. Yes. That Adam has to, so Adam has to work by the sweat of his brow. Yes, but some would say that, well, there were weeds and these kind of things beforehand, just that, uh, and so they were trying to explain that, are y'all able to hear me? Okay. I didn't know if it got frozen or not. Uh, that, for a few seconds, then came back. Okay, I didn't say anything important, so don't worry. <laughs> um, so when, that's why 
Peter Van Inwigen said that uh, that they were preternaturally preserved from these things. Like, so the rocks would not have hurt them. So as they tilled the ground, it would not have been difficult. But as soon as they sinned, then God would have taken away that protection and made it difficult. Okay. So the third one, and these are, I don't find as significant and they will take much less time. Those first two are very significant. And the last one I think is significant or the next to last one. Okay. So this one says three animal suffering is just not that significant. It's not that bad. Uh, so some suggested that animals don't have souls. Therefore their pain is not significant. Uh, Descartes uh, was a proponent of this, Rene Descartes, and he said that animals have life, they have sensation, but they don't have thinking brains. And because of this, the suffering is just not the same as humans suffer, is that we can, we can understand it more. So Gordon Wyndham, in his book, The Goodness of God, says that since animals are unable to consider the past, unable to anticipate the future, and more importantly, not fear death as humans do. They do not suffer as intensely. Uh, you know, they would talk about um, a fish is, you know, there was a seal coming by and the fish will scurry. And then once the seal is gone or even when they kill one and, and then the seal and they're all kind of a frenzy. And then immediately they just kind of calm down. The threat is gone. So they live in the present. They don't have this sense of the past, the future, the fear of death, guilt. Uh, so it seems that we're really anthropomorphizing their suffering. We look at animals, and my children call these chickens by name, but it's not as if these chickens have human feelings. They have chicken feelings. Well, what are chicken feelings? It's really hard to say. But people would say <laughs> they're chickens. No courage. Uh, it's the chicken and the egg. Yeah. So they have a sense that when we look at animals, they don't seem to perceive or respond to stimuli as we do. But Loftus argues against this and says that studies have shown, extensive studies have shown that animals do suffer more intensely than what this presumes. Animals share a common ancestor to humanity is the, is the comment, display similar behavior toward uh, suffering and have physiological similarities. So when they get hurt, they, they limp and, they, and, they, and they're very sensitive with that leg. Uh, sometimes they can get afraid and they scurry to a corner. A dog will cower in the corner because it's been kicked by its owner. And so he says that they do show fear, guilt, and joy. You know, if you've had a dog and it pooped behind the couch and you wonder why it's like being so friendly to you, it's like, well, you know, or when they see they might wag their tail. Maybe it's not just because they want food. Um, even today, uh, Nugget, one of Cherubus' chickens, had plenty of water, plenty of food, but they just, she just wanted to be around us. She didn't need food. She just wanted to be around us. So it seems like animals do have strong emotions and a sense of suffering. So, yeah, maybe they don't regret the past. Maybe they don't anticipate the future. Maybe they don't even fear death existentially. 
but it does not mean that they don't suffer. So Loftus says this is no good. The fourth explanation is that God just doesn't care. He's indifferent to animal suffering. Uh, now, because we are share an animal nature, we end up sympathizing with them, but God doesn't have a nature like ours. So he's quite indifferent to our suffering. However, Loftus argues, and I totally agree, that this idea of goodness then has no correlation to any concept of goodness that we can conceive. So as to say, God's idea of goodness is different because God is indifferent to suffering. And Loftus says, and if that's true, then why isn't he indifferent to human suffering? And that's simply not the God of the Bible. So let's dismiss that as well. The fifth option, so let me repeat, the first option is the fall, the curse of the fall. Uh, the second is satanic corruption. The third is animal suffering is not that significant. The fourth is God is indifferent. The fifth one is animals are simply a means to a human end. That God is using animals to a human end. So the basic argument here comes from John Hick, who argues that animals are instrumental to the life of humans. Now, in reading this, I've read it a few times, the argument is not very clear. <laughs> Greg, I know that you've read it, so maybe later you can tell me if it's clear to you. <clears throat> but it's basically a type of attitude that sees animals as having not intrinsic value, but just instrumental value to humans. That they're only as good as what they are useful to humans. And, <clears throat> but Loftus says, well, it seems that God says that animals would have intrinsic value because he cares for all creatures and, um, and that to injure an animal seems an injustice. And yeah, and that God created the angler fish that has seemingly no use for humans. Um, and I totally agree. And Loftus says that this has led to animal abuse. So we can just knock that out. Um, and I could add that God says a righteous man cares for the needs of his animal. Proverbs 12, chapter 10. I mean, chapter 12, verse 10. Um, now, I'm going to come back to this a little later because Solretter makes the argument, a similar argument, along an evolutionary view, saying that animal life suffered tooth and claw because of God's purposes of evolution to bring forth human life. So not just that animals were useful to humanity, but they actually were the compost for the human soul. That's my language, not hers. <laughs> I just came up with it, but I like it a lot. The sixth and the last one about animals is, well, they suffered a lot, but they're going to be resurrected. They're going to receive the reward, chicken heaven. Um, they will receive eternal bliss. And in fact, they will receive transformed natures, the lion laying down with the lamb. But Loftus quickly asks, how can billions of years of suffering be rewarded? Billions of years of suffering be rewarded in heaven. And even if this were so, even if heaven is a reward, how can a shark be a shark with a transformed nature? What changes of the ecosystem will there have to be for this such transformed nature? He goes, and if they won't be transformed, then what you got is what we have now. 
So <clears throat> he goes, since there's no adequate explanation of what heaven will be like for animals, then we have no reason to believe in such a place. And that he finds such a reward for such extended suffering unjustifiable. Okay. So this gets us to the seventh option, which is very intriguing. Uh, he points to Michael Murray's argument, which is very similar to Bethany Solretter's. It's an argument that creation was made to move from chaos to order. That all this suffering in this process will be outweighed by good in the end. It's, it's basically an evolutionary perspective of creation moving from lower level life at chaotic, chaotic lower level life moving up to a higher level life. So now I'm going to go a little off the script of what Loftus, because what I've been giving you is what Loftus has been arguing. I'm going to go a little outside of that and mention the three options that Solretter gives in this category. So Bethany Solretter is the faculty of um, theology at University of Oxford and an author of Animal, God, and Evolution. Uh, yeah, she gave. She was actually a student at Regent, and uh, and has recently given a lecture at Regent. Um, so she mentions uh, within her talk at BioLogos. Now, if you don't know, BioLogos is an organization that believes that evolution and Christian uh, in the Bible can be reconciled. And so BioLogos wants to reconcile evolutionary thought and the Bible. <coughs> so she speaks at she's speaking at BioLogos. And she breaks this view, this seventh option, into three subviews. Loftus doesn't mention them, but I'm going to mention them. Three ways of thinking of evolutionary violence with animal suffering and the God that God is good. One is the package deal. Uh, this is the belief that this is the best possible world, um, that there's an inevitability to it, and that God in his omniscience gives us the best world possible. Otherwise, he would not have given it to us. And that bloodshed is simply a part of that best world option. Um, as we see in Job 39, the eagles give, you know, uh, the young a blood, like a blood, um, not sacrifice, but um, something to eat, like something bloody to eat. And the Bible does not condemn it as an injustice, but a part of God's good care for creation. And they say, it just doesn't seem that bloodshed is really that contrary to God's will. It just seems part and parcel of God wanted, what God wanted with animals, or with animals. Uh, with animals. Mm -hmm. So Bethany, it's a good point. So Liz asked, well, just for animals? Yeah, it's not human blood. Um, now, what Bethany Soulwriter is at pains to say is that she believes in evolution she believes in animal suffering that happened a long time, but she believes in a historic, uh, a historic fall that happened at a historical moment and that humans fell at that moment. She doesn't go further than that. I don't know her views on how that works for her, but she would say that human blood happened as a result of the fall or at least homo sapiens sapiens or like homo divinatus. Humans, humans would not have killed animals before that because Adam and Eve didn't, but hominids would have. But animals would have killed 
Animals would not have killed humans, Adam and Eve, but they would have killed hominids. So there would have been bloodshed, but it, it all is. You remember earlier I was talking about uh, this one guy has an idea that Adam and Eve are placed into the garden with preternatural powers that protect them. Well, why is there a protection? Because animal, they could kill animals, they could be eaten by animals. But God made a special creation to bring his dominion over that violent world, but they failed and fell and were given into that. Now, Bethany Solreder did not say that, but that is a common belief, and it works well with her view. So I think that that is her view. So that's just the, the, the package deal. Well, the next option is the free process option. Uh, this is again, Christian, the Bible and evolution. Now this is an expansion of what is called the free will argument. Okay, the free will argument is that God is all good, all powerful, and yet evil exists. How can all three happen? Because God has given humans freedom. Uh, God did not create humans to be robots, but wanted love to exist, and love has to have the option of rejecting love. That's the free will argument. That's the free will defense. Well, this extends that and expands it to the freedom of nature. That nature is not just mechanical, mechanistic. That even animals have the sense of freedom. Um, and this freedom is worked out through desires and choices. Um, but what happens is that over time, these desires are culminated, combined like bread. She said, okay, you have to have ingredients to make bread. And, uh, and so you have the grain, the yeast, and all this. But then you also need human culture to kind of put it together. It doesn't make itself. And she said, in a, in a similar way, God had the ingredients of desires, but put them together to bring about a human soul. And that all these desires of instinct, survival, of compassion were brought together to form loving moral agents. <clears throat> um, now, before I turn to what Soulwriter says for herself, um, I want to look at what Loftus says about theistic evolution, because his response is to address these two and not to the final. Basically, he's not having it. Uh, he says, this is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. He says that in such a world where divine interference is unnecessary, because evolution believes that natural laws are playing themselves out, we don't need a biblical God at all. Why do you need God if natural laws are making this all work? It simply points to a lazy deity who needs natural laws to do what he could have done himself. It's almost letting the natural laws do the dirty work. While he sits back. Furthermore, Lothus says, if God did exist even, which he denies, God still could have created a world where suffering was never necessary. Where suffering was never necessary. God could have made a world where fruit trees were like weeds and that people were fed by photosynthesis. Why did, not, why did God not create a world where animal predation, or even human sin were possible. Mm -hmm. So he does not like this whole sense of evolutionary theory plus God. Mm -hmm. Let me quote Loftus at length in his <laughs> drop the mic moment. 
I see no reason at all why a perfectly good, omnipotent God would choose to create through a long evolutionary process such as we find in this world, unless we either radically alter what it means for him to be perfectly good or for him to be omnipotent, especially since he wants us to believe. The best explanation for the world of animal and human suffering is therefore evolutionarily natural selection where nature is red in tooth and claw, precisely because this is how the fittest survive. The God hypothesis is no solution for what we see in this world. The soul writer says, hold on, hold on. Let me offer a third option for theistic evolutionists. Now, this is in Loftus' book. Soul writer is not responding to Loftus. This is me making this conversation up, okay? Um, this is called the Christ-centered creation. And it's held by Holmes Rolston III and by Soul writer herself, I believe. So... The final argument is that what we see at work in the cross of death and life has been at work in all of creation since the beginning. Uh, quoting Soul Redder from her talk, like the passion of Christ, innocent suffering is followed by new life. In response to competition and destruction, new life comes out. Nothing is wasted. It comes into something more complex and more beautiful. So if you understand what she's saying there is that the pattern of the cross of him dying and bringing new life is the pattern of evolutionary development. Things eat each other and devour, but they lead to higher and more complex and more beautiful forms. Now, she did say herself that every theory has pros and cons. She never gave the cons of her own. So let me give you them. Let me give you them for her. Uh, now, the power of her explanation is that she says that God speaks positively of chaotic um, elements in nature, like the Leviathan, a sea monster. Uh, God speaks that there's nothing outside of his sovereign care, earthquakes and natural disasters. Yet this particular view, I believe, become problematic because what Christ, how Christ died, um, sorry, that Christ was crucified was evil. Made good by God's justice and mercy, overcoming evil in order to bring about his ultimate purposes. It does not explain. Um, now, okay, so there is a pattern of the cross that we are to follow. Jesus says, whoever will be my disciple, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. But <clears throat> it's to counter evil rather than seeing as evil as part and parcel of what God intended creation to be. God is countering evil, not having evil uh, as intrinsic property of creation. Does she work this out? I'm not sure. She didn't work it out in the lecture that I heard. And the last option is, I don't know. It's just, I don't know why... Um, why God does this. Um, Loftus points that many Christians raise their empty hands and say, don't know. It's because we don't have enough data about the nature or purpose of animals. All we have is working out possibilities of, um, as we find animal suffering 
horrible. So we see animal suffering and we believe God is good and we're just trying to work it out, but we don't know how or why. And Loftus says that ultimately this is what most Christians do because none of their arguments hold up. And they basically hide in their little biblical explanation, but they don't deal with reality or the standard of proof. Quoting Loftus, a religion that can only stand on such dubious guesswork is not a religion we have any epistemic right to accept. What he's saying there is any religion that says we just got to guess has no power of thinking or knowledge. The intense sufferings of animals, quoting Loftus again, uh, the intense sufferings of animals throughout billions of years so far have no credible excuse and are simply incompatible with the God proposed by Christian theism. Okay, so how can we as Christians respond to these options and to Loftus's rebuttal? So this is where I'm going to end. So first, I have to agree with Loftus that we can only have possibilities. The Christian can only come up with possibilities, not probabilities. Now, that's probably very unsatisfying. We want explanations. Why is the world the way it is? Why does suffering and evil exist? And why does a good God allow it? The Christian can give no probable explanation. But neither can the atheist. Why do we have this world and not another one? We can't answer it. We are products of this world, of nature, trying to address the very ground we stand on. Why do we exist? Now, the common answer from Dawkins and Loftus and many others is that it's sheer chance, a mere accident, a happy accident, but an accident. Yet this is an insufficient answer. Dawkins, with great emotion, decries that nature is pitiless and indifferent. But if one thinks about this deeply, one has to be troubled by how little nature cares about your cries, even Dawkins. Stephen Crane put it in his short story, The Open Boat. When it occurs to a man that nature does not regard him as important and that she feels she would not maim the universe by disposing him, he at first wishes to throw bricks at the temple. And then he hates deeply the fact that there are no bricks and no temples. So Stephen Crane is on this boat. It's a biographical account. Uh, and he's on this boat, and he thought he was going to be crashed and dashed across the rocks. And he says, and these rocks don't even care that they'll kill me. Nature is indifferent. But he hated so deeply that nature could care less. But why does he care? Upon what grounds does Dawkins and Crane and Loftus have to have moral outrage? There's no basis for their anger. Because they are a part of nature, why are they not indifferent? Just the way things are. The problem for the Christian is the evidence of suffering. The problem for Dawkins is the evidence of goodness and the problem of moral outrage. Nature is not totally indifferent if we care so much about it. So the best explanation any person can give is a possibility, not a probability. Even Dawkins himself says that when, he come, when it comes to society and social affairs, he is fundamentally anti-Darwinian. So even he cannot live consistently to his own presuppositions. The, Christ, the question that the atheist and the Christian are both trying to answer is the why question. 
And that is only a possibility, not probability. That's my first. I have only three points. The second one, the Christian has more than just their own reasons. They also have the Bible. They have revelation. Um, the Christian wants to address the question of why there's so much suffering. But we don't only try to figure out through reason alone or through philosophical propositions alone. We have the Bible to help us. We don't have the whole story, but we have some of the story. So in this essay, Loftus argues against certain biblical claims that God is good, eternal, all-powerful, and creator, but then measures it against a philosophical, naturalistic framework. But the Christian tries to square the claims against the Bible. What does God say of his own goodness in light of these things, if anything? And so the Bible gives a far more, um, gives a different definition or explanation than a philosophical argument. One, the Bible itself says that evil is mysterious. The Bible is not a philosophical treatise that is to be explained by propositions to overcome defeaters. If you're a philosophy person, you understand what I'm saying. Mm. In fact, we can pour through the Bible, but nowhere in the whole story is the origin of evil. We don't know where evil started. The most we have is that Jesus says that Satan fell like lightning. That's a shred, a small shred. And then we have to ask, how did the serpent get into the garden in the first place? The Bible just asserts it doesn't explain. Ultimately, Evil is left a mystery, and it's intentionally left a mystery in the Bible. Even in the book of Job, God speaks to the devil, the devil who wants to make a righteous man suffer. God allows it. Why? When Job's friends want to speak about why Job is suffering, they want to give rational reasons. They try to give theodicies. But these theodicies fail. Now, while these theodicies may not seem like very good ones, I agree with Richard Bradford, my colleague, who says that no theodicy would be adequate. Even at the end of Job, after these theodicies, when God speaks, he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? That's God's response. That's it. The Bible does not explain the origin of evil. And it does not give an explanation of why creation suffers natural evil. I believe that this is because evil is not merely a logical problem. What explanation can satisfy? Um, suffering is not merely a theoretical problem. It's an existential problem, one that we experience. So I can tell you to give a free will defense to someone who's just experienced tragedy will do more harm than good. So the Bible, the Christian has the Bible. It doesn't tell the whole story, but some of the story. And some of that story is that evil is mysterious. Two, God's response to evil is not to give a logical statement, but to address the mystery of evil with a further mystery, the mystery of the cross. So this means that God does not remain aloof as a philosopher, but addresses us in his word. First, by telling us the story throughout history, through his inspiration and interaction of his people, and then by coming into that story, into that history, 
in the person of Jesus who walked in our midst, shared our sorrows, and was crucified. Um, so Jesus didn't suffer just for us on our behalf, but he also suffered with us. So is God good? Well, God suffered with us. That's a mystery. So God doesn't give us a philosophical explanation, but he does give him himself. He gives us himself. This doesn't explain suffering away, but it does deepen it. And I believe in a much more adequate way than any logical theodicy that Loftus points. And in his death and resurrection, Christ brings renewal, not just to those who call on him, but to all of creation. All those animals who suffered. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. And I think that this is what Loftus misses. The Christian is anchored in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's the starting point, the only starting point for the Christian. It's from there that the Christian then attempts to work out possibilities. Possibilities are based solely on the foundation of Jesus in his cross. Otherwise, we're looking for a different foundation to understand the mystery of evil. Ignorance, then, is not a claim of ignorance that Christians make, is not stupid, it's not irrational, as Loftus suggests, but simply the place of a humble learner. Now, there are some explanations for animal suffering that I liked better than others. Uh, some simply fell short of rational or biblical consistency. But I just want to say that there is no full reason save for the cross of Christ. But we can use these theodicies or these options as ways of thinking through, but they will never ultimately satisfy. They are secondary. So is God good? He laid down his life so that we might be forgiven and restored and so that all shall be well.